this week's sermon from C3 Church Narara. We hope you enjoy this message. For more information or to contact us, visit c3church.narara.net. great to be here on a nice cold day. Sun's out though, it's good. We are continuing our series on James this week. Uh, We've been working through the chapters once a week. Um, If you're connected into a connect group, it's uh, it's been a great journey, a Bible journey you could say. Is that, yep, there we go. Uh, It's been great and so that's what we continue on today. We're going to dive into James chapter 4. So if you want to uh, pull up your, your Bible apps or if you've got an analogue Bible or whatever, you if you can just memorise it, if you're that good, then just draw it up in your mind. So James chapter 4, writing to all the different churches and uh, this one's going to start out pretty strong. James is, is going pretty hard and so it reads, What causes the fights and the quarrels among you? Don't they come from the evil desires at war within you? You want what you don't have, so you scheme and kill to get it. You are jealous of what others have, but you can't get it. So you fight and wage war to take it from them. Yet you don't have what you want because you don't ask God for it. And even when you ask, you don't get it because your motives are all wrong. You only want what will give you pleasure. And if he hadn't gone hard enough, he continues, You adulterers! Don't you realise that friendship with the world makes you an enemy of God? I say it again. If you want to be a friend of the world, you make yourself an enemy of God. Do you think the scriptures have no meaning? They say that God is passionate and the spirit has placed within us should be faithful to him. Wow. So we are going right into it. He is, um, thank you, take the scripture down for now. The uh, Right off the bat, he's basically... Um, you know, criticising and, and slapping some of the churches down for being prideful, for being quarrelling and fighting amongst each other. And um, so this is really early days of the church. They're still figuring out kind of what a church is. They had moved from the synagogues and started this new thing called a church and we're following this guy called Jesus who would come and preach. So this is early days. For Like there's no like um, previous church generation or pope or whatever the, the figurehead would be, archbishop, there's nothing. It's just like... Jesus died a couple of years ago, and now we're just like trying to figure out his teachings. And so there's been quarreling, you know, people, you know, you don't know the specific circumstances of it, but if anyone has ever lived, you would know that people do fight. And so have you ever been in conflict with someone who's supposed to be on your team? Anyone? I have seen that plenty of times. If you've been at a workplace or if you're in a family or you've played on a sports team, you would see people fight despite being on the same team. I once saw, uh, I played footy with two twins and one of them like pissed off the twin because they were, they were second rowers in the scrum together and because they were identical height, which was handy. Anyway, and they like started fighting and, uh, and then literally started fistcuffs on the field and like the other team kind of stood back. We're like, are you guys, and all our team stood back. We're like, well, they're brothers. I, don't, I guess we break it up. It was, anyway... <laughs> But anyway, that's one story. But I, I have a story about 
Conflict when you're both on the same objective, but you just cannot figure it out. And this is um, this is on a much larger scale. And the the point of um, well, I'll tell you the point at the end. Actually, let's leave you leave you hanging there. But anyway, so I was in the army, and uh, and one of the jobs I had sort of towards the end of the time, I worked in a headquarters. So I was the S three three, which is the S is army below battle group le- at battle group level. Three is operations, and three is the operations of the operations. That's just how it works. Anyway, so that was my position. That's really niche and specific for you to know. It's very important. Um, anyway, and I was working on a um, essentially what is like an aircraft carrier. They have the amphibious um, big ships. You might see them in Sydney Harbour, those like giant ships that come out of the water. There's two of them, and I was in the headquarters of one of them. And so part of what you do in that, uh, and I was in the army, so you might ask why are you on a boat? Wasn't my choice, that's for sure, but they put army soldiers on there so that you land and then you go and do your army stuff. So the Navy are essentially acting as a, a bus driver, which they love to be called. And um, part of, so to visualise it, I do have a photo. You, um, so that is soldiers, this is actually getting back on. So that little boat thing actually drives up onto the sand and you get off and you get on. And so that's a photo I took as my soldiers were getting back on and the, the big ship that you'd see in Sydney Harbour is like on the other side of the horizon, so miles out. Anyway, um, so we're, we're doing this exercise and it is a massive exercise. There are like 50,000... Thanks, you can take that down. Um, there's like 50,000 soldiers and sailors and um, there's international, there's the, the Americans, the British, the Japanese were there, the Kiwis tagged along. There was everything... And, like, Air Force, the whole shebang. You might see it on the news every couple of years, like, oh, there's a big army exercise and, you know, the Chinese are spying on us while we do it and all this kind of stuff. And so we're on this exercise and part of it is getting those boats to land on the ground and you have to organise, like, which soldiers are going to be on which boat because you don't want to lose a soldier in the middle, middle of it or it's a big ship and it's like you don't want to miss your boat. So you're tracking it really, really detailed. You've got, like... A thousand soldiers, and you have to know every single boat and every single soldier where they're going to be. So that was part of my job, like figuring all that, the logistics of it, what time, because you have to to time it with the tides, because the tides go out and come in, and if the tide goes out, you can't get the boat in close enough. Your soldiers can't, well, those soldiers can't swim um, in all that gear. So it is a lot of planning. And uh, basically, the way you work from the army, you basically put them on the boat. And they go, they kind of disappear, you don't hear from them. And then when they get on land and they set up their radios and they basically say, we're here. And you're like, great, okay, this group of soldiers is there and you wait for the next one. And so we had been, I'd been doing this and I was you know, on the radios and we were waiting for one of our platoons. We're like, where is this platoon? They got on the boat like an hour ago, they should have arrived. Where are they? Where are they? What's going on? And so I basically went into the Navy side of the headquarters and what had happened is that the tide had gone out and the guy who was the navy guy that was driving the little boat basically told the guy, whatever rank it was, uh, on the big boat, saying, "Where we can't get in, like it's the, the tide is gone, we can't get in. We're coming back." And the guy on the big boat said, "No, you will land." And so he tried again and said, "We physically cannot. I'm coming back. No, you aren't." And so there was this back and forth, this boat going back and forth for about an hour. Anyway, until finally the the guy the commander, I guess, driving the little boat. I don't know Navy ranks very well, sorry, or how it all works. Um, 
They basically went, stop this, we're coming back. Like, we cannot get in. The tide, as this argument's going on, the tide is getting further and further out and they, they just can't. And so apparently all the army guys on the shore were just watching this boat just come in and out and in and out and trying and just, just wasn't working. They're just like, what are they doing? And they were yelling, like, just start to swim and oh, screw you guys. And anyway, so anyway, they finally came back. And you would think, okay, fine, like, we do it tomorrow. Uh, and here's where it gets complicated because the Navy have very, very strict like work rest times because, you know, they need to sleep and they need to rest and the army don't get to, but the Navy get to. And the, um, <laughs> this is just, you're just getting a bit of an insight here, right? I apologise if there's Navy people watching, but, um, but this is all factual. I'm not, I'm not criticising, this is just the facts. Um, they had a work rest ratio and, um, and basically the big ship, when it opens up and lets all the little ones out, the people that work that, closed up like they work eight hours and that is it and because they had worked to the tides so they closed and so this little boat out in the middle of ocean was like hey open up and the navy basically said no we're closed and um this little boat in the middle of the ocean was like no really we really need you to open up we can't land and our soldiers are standing these these boats are just like an open bucket basically um we need to let us in and so that's where I found out. I was like, well, where are they? They're like, oh, I guess they're just out there. And so I walked down onto the quarter deck, which is this little deck sort of out the back. And sure enough, there's like the boat just in the middle of the ocean and 36 soldiers just like, oh, let us in. And this time it's like midnight. So they're like not happy about it. And it was just an absolute like, oh, man, this is not good. Um, they can't just stay out there all night. Um, it's in the middle of the ocean. They're in basically like a big dinghy. And so basically the solution they figured out was the other big ship, the HMAS, I'm all, I think I was on the Adelaide and that was the Canberra or vice versa, their dock is still open. So just go to them. I was like, okay. And by this stage it's like 2 a.m. And so the driver of this boat was like, we're just going in, like not asking permission. They basically just said, hey, this is boat one, two, three, we're coming in. And they just went in. And by this stage, all the soldiers just got off and just found beds and racked out and fell asleep. And so you'd think, okay, well, that's all right. So the next morning, the original ship that, you know, they're supposed to come from was like, we were like, okay, let's send those soldiers out. Let's go. Um, you know, our dock's open. And the Navy were like, where's boat one, two, three? It's not here in our dock. And I'm like, Correct. You didn't open up. It's on the other ship. Okay, well, let's get that boat and bring it back to this ship and so we can start again. No, no, because their dock cycle is closed. <laughs> their work rest cycle means they can't open up. And it was like, but then we can't get our soldiers on the boat on this ship because that ship. And so basically it threw out the entire amphibious task group, like, 40,000 soldiers like had to rearrange and they'd call like, oh, we have to open this and then the rest cycles are ruined. And, and this is just the deck. There's also, sorry, the dock. There's also the deck where all the helicopters are going in and that's all synchronised as well. So it threw out all the pilots and they've got strict whatever ratios and all kinds of stuff. It threw out the whole exercise by like 18 hours. And I'm talking like up to Minister for Defence level like stuff up. Like, that is the level that it went up to. Like, yeah, the, you have to tell the American diplomats that, like, we're not going to be here because we're still stuck here and, like, oh, the, the Prime Minister can't visit those guys. Like, it was massive. Because, like, it just this little conflict they just could not sort out, like, let us back in. No, we're not going to all just... I mean, we're all on the same team. And they couldn't figure it out and cause this massive stuff up. Like, it would have cost so much money with all the fuel and the, like whatever else. It just was huge. Why? These 
two, the two guys that were arguing, they basically just couldn't accept that they were wrong and the other person may have been right. And I, I don't know the specifics of it, but what James is going on here is that all conflict in church, all the, the family and the church conflict you may have is because you're jealous of what other haves, other people have. You don't want to let go and, and, and cannot admit basically that you may have been wrong. Um, you wage a war, he says, to try and take things. Um, the whole point here is it's rooted in pridefulness. All this conflict is self-centered. It's rooted in you, what I think is right. No, I'm right. It's, it's, it's not, okay, I have to accept that I may be wrong and he may be right because we're both trying to get onto the beach. We're both trying to build the church. It is rooted in, but I think we should do it this way. I think the music should be louder. I think the lights should be dimmer. I think that we should have an overhead projector. I think the kids' church should be run this way. I think we should have the cafe run a certain way. Like, pick an area and there's guarantee that you will have a different opinion to someone else in this church on how it's run. I guarantee. And it happens. It's natural to feel that you can do it better or you've got ideas and, and I wish that they just did it this way. Why won't anyone listen to me the way? Because I know, trust me, I know this. It may be. And you may be right. If we think back to the other previous chapters we've had, you know, what was the week, uh, the week previously? It was controlling your tongue, you know. It's pridefulness. Just to feel like, well, tr- people need to hear what I have to say. Okay, people need to hear this. It's important. Um, I come with a wisdom that no other could possibly have. You know, <laughs> boast open the doors. I have the solutions. Everyone, listen up. I've got it. Thanks, champ. How about uh, prejudices? The week before that, even chapter two was about treating people differently because of who they might be. It's pridefulness. It's about you. Well, well, they're from from that school and I'm from this school or, oh, they come from this country or they have an accent or they're um, whatever from a different group. But my group is better, you know. I support this sports team and those plebs or I support a different sport and all those plebs supporting that, that peasant sport. But I actually, I'm, I'm more into this sport or whatever. It's all pridefulness. It's all self-centred. I would challenge, are you the person that feels like you're constantly in conflict with people around you. What's the common denominator? Yeah? And, and like, if you, if you take a moment and think like, oh, if, if all the people in your life, you think they're always wrong and they're always wrong and they're always wrong and it's like maybe there's something here, uh, you know? And, and really try and examine your pridefulness, the level of, maybe you are a genius and, the, and you're the Solomon of um, Narara and you may be right all the time and that's great. But what's, what purpose does it serve? Everyone, no. Just to clarify, you're not all the Solomon of... That was a hypothetical, okay? I saw too many heads nod then. You're right, I am the Solomon of... He finally gets me. No, 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 no. <laughs> you're not, okay? Because I am. Uh, and I've got the microphone, so that's what I'm saying. No, no, no. Um, <laughs> the point here is, even if we all were as genius and, and wise... Uh, you're going to come into conflict anyway from different opinions, different backgrounds, different ways of achieving the same thing. The root of the problem is pridefulness. What? Okay. Um, the root of the problem is pridefulness. 
Think of when you got in an argument at work or you clashed with your family or uh, you got into a, some sassy comment battle online or um, what's, what's happened that you've lashed out at someone or even amongst the church you, you thought this person should have done this and, you know, I sent them a text and they didn't respond and, you know, I invited them. But they, like, it's all pridefulness. If we define ourselves by anything other than being a Christian under grace, then we will inevitably lead to conflict. If we define ourselves as, uh, you know, I'm a a footy player first and then a Christian. If I'm a, a, you know, my profession is I'm a general manager first and then I'm, you know, uh, a Christian. Whatever it is, you'll never be able to, if you you define yourself by those things, you're you're nothing, anything more than your relationship with God. But if you center your life around your relationship with God and everyone else is doing that as well, there won't be a conflict. So this is when essentially like what's the solution to this pridefulness? And so if we go back to James, if we bring up uh, James, James chapter 4 again, in verse 6, he says, And he gives gracious, graciously, as the scriptures say, God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. So, humble yourselves before God. And in this, uh, yeah, this translation says, submit yourselves to God. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. Come close to God and God will come close to you. Wash your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts. For loyalty, for your loyalty, and he's admonishing them again, for your loyalty is divided between God and the world. So what he's saying is, humility is the opposite of pridefulness. And in order to bring ourselves close to God, we need to embrace humility. And in this instance, he's actually saying, subject yourself to God. Humility is the answer. So subject yourself to God. So I want to go through how to be humble, basically. Uh, it, is, it, it's, you know, it sounds simple. You just don't be prideful, the opposite of that. But like, what is the practical, boiled down, like today version of being humble? So the first one is that humility is being devoted. It is uh, subjecting yourself to the authority of God. And, uh, I mean, this is probably the least popular thing in, you know, modern Christianity, Uh, particularly in our society where the idea of um, subjecting yourself to an authority is, is naturally not our inclination. You know, for many different cultures and many different generations before us, it was natural that you know, you subject yourself to the king or the monarch or the whatever it is. But now we're as free as a society as we've ever been, as an individualistic, particularly in Western Australian culture, as free and independent as we've ever been in society. So this idea of like subject yourself before God. And I even looked up like my natural, like it's a very strong word, subject yourself. It's kneeling before a throne or something. I even looked up like, what's the Hebrew of subject yourself here? Maybe it means something else. It's like, no, it literally means subjugation. I was like, oh, okay. It's even stronger in Hebrew than it is in English. Um, It is literally submitting to authority. It's not an appealing idea. It's, it's, It's interesting as we, you know, we raised, as I'm raising, you know, kids now, and, and as you raise, you, you naturally know that, you know, rules and boundaries are good for these children because they don't understand so much. And then when we reach a certain age, you kind of like graduate from rules and aside from what is, you know, illegal and legal. Um, but in terms of like 
moral boundaries and ethics, which is kind of like, I've got this sorted now. Like, I know what's right and wrong. Have you ever, like, thought back to when, you, like, 10 years earlier, like, when you were younger and you did something and it just makes you, like, cringe inside? You're just like, why did I do that or say that? I mean, I'm much more wiser now, and so I've got it all figured out. I would have done it so differently. And then 10 years later, I'm sure you could think back, like, each phase of your life, you've, as you grow and progress, and it's like, each time you think you've got it figured out, I guarantee in 10 years you're going to go, I did not have that figured out. But there is one person who, you know, who has got it literally all figured out, and that is the creator of the universe, God. So submitting yourself to his authority and actually, you know, admitting that you don't know everything and, and, and understanding that is fundamental to humility. There's this, like, you would call it a, um, you know, just a spread in modern Christianity, probably enhanced by just, you know, it's the, the ease, so to speak, of modern living where we're free, we can kind of choose whatever you want to do basically in life within reason. And, and, and the devil's done a great job of basically convincing the church that you can have a bit of this and a bit of that and a bit of God in church on a Sunday. You can't. He's, uh, James says that. He says earlier, like, uh, divided loyalties. You cannot be... Uh, devoted to the world and the church and God. It, it doesn't work. You can't, inevitably, there's going to be a conflict. If you follow sports and you go for a sports team and then you go for a different sports team, that might work most of the time, but eventually they will come into conflict to each other and you're going to have to choose. Which one is it going to be? You can't have two divided loyalties. It's impossible to p- not pick a side in this, in this. You have to put God first and truly devote as long as you don't devote your entire life and your entire heart to God, then the devil's won that battle. The divided loyalty to him is, is, that's great. I've got this part of you and that's all I need. And God needs everything. He needs your entire devotion. True humility is accepting and 100% devoted to God and his plan for us. If he's got a path laid out for you and it requires you to walk it, you can't walk half of it and then veer off. You you you're not going to finish. It's like, well, I did half of it. You didn't finish the race, you know? There's no half measures here. When we humble ourselves before God and truly submit, there will be no conflict internally and externally with others. There's no internal conflict because, well, you know, the Bible says don't drink, but I do kind of go out on Saturdays and that's okay. Or I do kind of like eat too much, but that's just one part of me. Eventually, there's going to be an internal conflict of where your loyalties really lie. Is it with God or is it with the world? Pick the right choice here, guys. Like 100% subject yourself and devote yourself to God. The second one for humility is being wrong. And, key point, because you're all going to be wrong at one point, we all are, right? And then admitting to it and knowing you're wrong. Proverbs uh, 28.13 It says, whoever conceals their sins does not prosper, but the one who confesses and renounces them finds mercy. I saw a different version. Um, The message says, a person who refuses to admit his mistakes can never be successful. But if that person confesses and forsakes those mistakes, another chance is given. When was the last time that we actually genuinely said to ourselves, you know what, I was wrong about that. When did we really admit, like, I was incorrect? 
This is when all the husbands and wives can kind of nudge each other and gives you, you know, like, yeah, hmm? But truly, like, I had this great idea at work and I pushed for it and I told other people they were wrong and it didn't work. And that is on me. Humility in the role of being a Christian is being holding on very loosely, if not at all, onto the, the need to feel like you're right. The idea of like, I know better and I'm right should not supersede what is better for God. If you, like I mentioned it before, there's a million different ways to run a church and you might have different ideas and so many conflicts rise just because you, I want to feel like I'm right. The feeling of like I was correct and the, even the unspoken I told you so is just the best feeling ever. We can't resist it. It's just like, oh, the amount of times you just feel like, I don't need to say it, I'm just going to be silent here. How humble of me. No, no, no. You push to the point of like when you wanted to be right anyway. Um, not, not holding on to that. It means it's not to, uh, you know, take successes and failure too seriously. And I think it's, it's really important to understand like humility is not humility in successes because that is the easiest, cheapest form of humility when you, someone gives you a compliment or you get an award and you're like, oh, no, no, thanks. Yeah. That, that's, I mean, that, that's humility in the, in the shallowest sense. It's, it's easy. Some would even call it false humility to a degree. But humility in failure is way harder because, oh, I was wrong. No one's, no one's complimenting me. No one's giving me a award, but everyone's kind of realizing, oh, that was my fault. And actually owning up to that and going, oh, that was, that was wrong. It's, it's what the scripture said. If you confess to that and forsake them and go, I, I will learn from this, another chance is given. You, concealing your sin is, is not admitting to it. Like, oh, it wasn't a sin. It was, it was just a little thing. It's, it's all good. No, no, no. Humility is the fundamental understanding that we don't know everything and that we will be wrong about some things. And I, uh, I'm naturally not good at this. Um, thankfully, my wife isn't here today to um, stand up and give her testimony about that. But um, I have it documented. And, and what you may mean by that is I went and found my school reports this week. And um, I was not good at school. And I have it very clearly outlined. So I know there's some school teachers here. And I, I would be curious to know, like getting some feedback from school teachers here, like are these like overly harsh or is this like what you would generally tell a bad student? Because um, I know that like I've written reports, I'm not a school teacher, but writing performance reviews and all this kind of stuff, like you do a lot of like, okay, they're, they're fine, you know, some things to work on. But I feel like there was a lot of custom language in this. that They really <laughs> spent some time on like, these are not templated ones. So anyway, I'll read some to you. Um, here's my report from maths and this is high school from, what, 2003 onwards, uh, Hudson loses concentration in class and often shows little interest in learning. He does not revise all relevant formula, and this is clear in his poor results. Um, since joining the class, Hudson has not demonstrated any commitment to his studies. Good stuff. Anyway, uh, science. So uh, at least I'm consistent because this is not just one subject and one teacher. Um, or, or one year for that matter. In fact, before I read the next one, I actually got to the point where... Uh, you know, they, I gave out, I think, a half year and then an end of year report. And I got to like year nine and I was like, I just get grounded every time I bring these home. So I'll just not bring it home. And, um, and I just didn't mention it and got away with it one year. And then I remember the next year, dad was like, Where, where's the half year report? And 
I lied, and I'll admit to that. I just said, I don't know if they do those in like late high school anymore. And um, I just didn't give it to them. <laughs> and uh, to avoid, I knew that I was going to get heaps of crap for it. So anyway, science. Um, Hudson has the ability in this subject, and you know, there's a positive thing. Because I looked at the score, I scored 79, and the average was literally 79. So I'm an average student. Um, it is a pity he does not always put his best efforts into classwork, if at all. Hudson is interested in is more interested in distracting others than learning. That is not a template. Like they don't have that loaded up, ready to go. Software, computer, IT stuff. At this stage of the year, Hudson's results are a concern. It is clear he puts in little effort outside of class time. Anyway. I did put in a lot of effort in the computer class to just try and find ways to get around like the, the firewalls just to play games on the computer. Um, anyway, so I admit that I was not a great student. Um, thankfully, I did learn from that. I ended up going to university, believe it or not, with those uh, school reviews. So that was a miracle in itself. Um, when was the last time you went, you know what, I was wrong. I did not know that. And I, uh, I admit that I need to be better at this. I was wrong. Really challenge yourself, church. God knows that you're wrong and that's okay. He forgives you. You sin, it happens. But the key is admitting it, moving forward. Our path for us is not an easy path. It's not smooth. It's going to be rocky. There's going to be bumps. But God is with us. He loves us and His grace will guide us forward. Amen. He loves us. He makes sure that it doesn't matter what your mistakes are, your sins, no matter how bad they are, no matter how bad your school reports are, He still loves you. He still wants you to get to the finish line. Even if it is that last grasp at the end, He wants you. There's never too late to get on the path and admit what you did was wrong and ask for forgiveness and reach that finish line in strength. Amen. How good. Humility. Third one. Humility is not being self-sufficient. In Psalm 34, it says, when the righteous cry out for help, the Lord hears and delivers them from all their troubles. When the righteous cry out for help, this is not when the, the sinners cry out for help and when the people who are in, like the, the dregs cry out for help. These is when the righteous cry out for help. So the people who are following God still need to ask for help. We are not self-sufficient, especially, again, we are basically drilled in society now, like, you know, be, be all you can be, you can do it. Um, it's all about your dream and that's great, but you're going to need help along the way. You can't do it all. I, I, could, I could stand here for hours talking about the amount of times I needed help with something. The, and I, and I, don't, I don't just mean like I need help doing like a manual labour that I don't want to do. Like, oh, I can't move my house by myself. Can everyone come help me move my house? It's like, that's it's not really humility, just trying to get other people to do work with you or for you. No, no, true humility is recognising that God has uniquely designed you as an incredible human with strengths but also weaknesses. And he's designed you to be in church as part of the body of Christ so that your weaknesses can, uh, will be complemented by someone else's strengths and vice versa. Acknowledging that you have weaknesses and that is something that we should uh, work on and, and rely on other people. Being totally self-sufficient is impossible. The righteous cry out for help. It's going to happen. 
no matter how smart, no matter how rich, no matter how tough or how strong you think you are, eventually something's going to knock you down. Something is going to rock you in life. There's a death in the family. There's a bad relationship. There's a terrible thing at work. Whatever it is, we all need help sometimes. Recognising that and knowing where to find that help, which is right here and with God, is is part of being humble. Knowing that as a humble Christian, I have a lot of things that I can trust God for and, and one of those is asking him for help. And I'm blessed with all the, uh, all, the, all the blessings and gifts and strengths that he's given me, but that's not everything. But God is everything. God is the solution. He is the answer and he is the way to success in our spiritual life, in our physical life, for everything. God is the answer. Church, I want to encourage you. James comes in very strong in not being conflicting with Christians and not fighting. And the root of that is pridefulness, if we want to get the band up. Self-serving pride leads to a miserable existence. If you know, like, if you can think of the, like, the most miserable person you know, and hopefully then I would assume they're not here, but someone at work, you're just like, they are just a drag to be around of any age. I, I, met, I, um, I caught up with my grandparents in like a retirement village recently and we're at like this cafe thing on the, in the village and even they, like some, some old guy walked past and I go, oh, there's old grumpy bones. And uh, I'm like, <laughs> they're like 90. And even then there's like, I'm like, well, what's his deal? He's like, oh, he's the president of the committee. Oh, yes, he's constant. And I looked and he literally was... You know, like the, he just had that look. He had the, the English cap thing. It just made it really look down. Like the sun was out and he was wearing a trench coat as well. I was like, all right, mate. Um, and it's just pridefulness. I'm, I'm sure he was, you know, he's a smart guy, whatever it is, but pridefulness just leads to a miserable life. It leads to conflict and it's fine. Maybe you win a conflict. Maybe you were right. Let it go. The opposite of pridefulness is humility and just letting go of that pridefulness. We're going to be wrong. We're going to fall down. You're not going to be right. It's going to happen and that is okay because God's grace is love and love is unconditional. It doesn't matter what you've done, where you've been, He still loves you and His God's grace is available to us. If we're in the church and we are truly putting God first, there won't be conflict. You won't be miserable. But let go of your ego. Let go of the worldly, I want this and I think that it should be this. Let it go. Let God's grace come through to you and His love just radiate from you. They're just the best person to be around. Not only will it affect externally, it'll tear you from God's grace. Not living in a humble life separates you from God. It's impossible to fully be embraced by God without humility. It'll leave you disconnected and and jealous and spiteful without it. James is imploring us, be humble, be loving, and accept God's grace for us made available through Jesus Christ. Amen. Amen.
we hope you've enjoyed this week's sermon. For more information or to contact us, visit c3church.narara.net.